Today, I want to bring our attention to Acts chapter number 9, and uh, this text I've been praying over as well, and I I believe there's such a great uh, reminder and lesson for us here in the conversion of uh, the, well, I keep wanting to call him the Apostle Paul, but he's not that yet in this text. He is Saul of Tarsus. And so the title of the message this morning is The Work of Saving Grace. The Work of Saving Grace. And I pray that we will see this from our text here today, and I pray that it would encourage us, but... Uh, above all, I pray that God would draw sinners to himself. That is what I want. I want to see uh, souls saved by the gospel of Jesus. And I pray that uh, if you don't truly know him today, that today would be the day God may save you and bring you to himself. And so let's read Acts chapter number 9 and verse 1 down through verse number 9. Notice the Bible says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. We have before us one of the most remarkable texts of a conversion account, one who is converted to Christ. It's a real account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and it is one that is somewhat familiar to us as Christians. We've read this, and it's one that sticks out, and even in the world they tend to know and hear of uh, this account of what happens to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Throughout the Bible, we'll find several different accounts of how and when people came to be converted unto Christ. Those who encountered the Lord and were changed by Him. Some people were broken with physical infirmity and were changed by Christ. Some were banished by their society. Some were bound in chains of of demonic possession. Some were fierce enemies of God's people and God Himself. And at the core of every person who comes to Jesus, no matter what, their circumstances in their world and, uh, and what they were experiencing, at the core of all of those encounters, we see that sin reigned supreme and that the Savior overcame that sin and saved them. You see, that is what Jesus as the Savior does. He sets us free from the bondage of sin and of death. And in our text, we see a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, He's a man who is bound in his sin, though he doesn't realize it. He is bound, so bound in sin and blind in sin that he is a vicious enemy of Christ. He is a persecutor of Jesus and his disciples. And yet this man, in our text, experiences a change unlike any other. He is stopped dead in his tracks of what he was aiming to do, and he is taken captive by the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is eternally saved 
by the marvelous grace of God. If there's ever a biblical picture of grace, I believe we see it here in this passage with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Now, we all know what grace is, right? Grace is the undeserved and unearned favor bestowed by God. This is, friend, how every person who ever gets saved comes to be saved. It's only through grace. It's only through grace. It's never in and of ourselves. And it's through this man we find, Saul of Tarsus, we've been preaching through Ephesians, that we see his conversion point. We, we have much of our New Testament that we read and study that God inspired and gave us as the word of God is pinned down by this man we see in this text. And he will later write, and we'll get to in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, what does Paul say there? He says, for you have been saved by what? By grace. You have been saved by grace through Faith, that is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. And what we see true of Saul of Tarsus today is true of every person who is saved today. And I want to point out just a few things about the grace here that Paul experiences, that we have experienced. And I pray that if you have not experienced and known this grace, that today might be the day that you would know this grace that we're talking about. Notice with me in our notes here today, and you should be happy, they're, they're half of what they were yet last week, right? So I'm getting back to normal. We'll see what normal becomes as we go on. I don't know. I'm not going to promise anything. But we'll see just a few points here in our notes this morning. I want you to notice, firstly, that grace called Saul unto Christ. Grace called Saul unto Christ, and you'll find that word called is one of Paul's favorite words he uses throughout his letters because he understood what it meant. He understood what it meant to be called by Christ, to be drawn by him and taken captive by him. And, and notice a couple things about this calling unto Saul of Tarsus and, and understand that when we speak of being called by God and called unto him, you understand that calling and conversion means that God has sought you and drawn you to himself. It, it, it's more than just a general invitation, although it includes that. It is an effectual invitation, one in which grips the heart of those who hear and brings them unto himself. And so notice a couple things about this, that Jesus sought him, speaking of Saul, Jesus sought him despite his past. Jesus sought him despite his past. Now understand, we must recognize who this Saul of Tarsus is and what he's doing at this moment. In the early church, as you read through the book of Acts, that, that church in Jerusalem, the religious Jewish leadership sought to destroy the message of the gospel. They wanted to wipe out this idea that Christ was risen, and they wanted to uh, just disband the local church and what God was doing. They did this first by commanding the apostles to just stop preaching in the name of Jesus, right? You go read Acts 4 and, verse, and chapter 5, and, and, and you'll see the religious leaders. They command Peter and John and the apostles do not teach or preach anymore in the name of Jesus. It's forbidden. And we know how Peter and John, the apostles, they were bold to say, we ought to obey God rather than men. And we cannot help but testify of the things that we have seen and heard in the risen Christ. So we see that there was persecution. 
At first, it was mostly verbal oppression with a little bit of physical interaction being thrown into custody for a short time. But then it turned into real, all-out, physical persecution against the church. Physical persecution in the church to which Christians were being imprisoned and even killed all for the message of Christ, the risen Savior. And guess who is leading the charge in this endeavor? It's this man we see right here, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, he's leading this endeavor. Now, if you back up just for a moment, Saul was there when a significant man in the church, a deacon named Stephen, was stoned to death. We look at Acts chapter 8 for a moment, and you look at verse 1 through 3. If you read Acts 7, you're going to see how that whole narrative plays out. Stephen stands up, preaches one of the best sermons you'll read in Scripture. Powerful. Keep in mind, Saul of Tarsus heard that sermon. He was there, all right? He held the clothes of those who threw the stones at Stephen. And so what we find here is that in verse 1 of chapter 8, we find that Saul approved of his execution. Saul's okay with this. He's on board. He approves of them taking Stephen out of the city and stoning him to death because of the message he preached about Jesus. And we read what further takes place in that verse. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul is on a mission. He is on a mission uh, that, that consumes his heart and his mind. And so Saul was feared by the early church and for good reason. Now, if we look at Saul's past here, those of his day would see him as doing God's work. Those of his Jewish comrades would see him as this prestigious, well-renowned Jewish Pharisee having great credentials and one who should be revered. Paul even said of himself in his flesh before Christ, Philippians 3 and verse 3, 5 through 6, he said of himself that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul knows what he was before Christ, that he was of the top of the religious crowd. But though Saul was religious and zealous about his religion, he was lost and blind in his depravity. You understand that that still applies to a lot of people in today's modern Christianity. Not everybody under the umbrella of Christianity is truly a Christian. Do not be mistaken there. He had no clue who he really was until he met Christ personally. Now, Saul would have been in the same group that Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 27. Jesus really hounded the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that's one reason they hated him so bad. He, he told them like it was. In Matthew 23, 27, he says to them, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. What did Paul say he was? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. 
But Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Now, there's a cultural understanding here. I went, I've been to Israel twice, and there on the side of the Mount of Olives, you will see an innumerable amount, really, of these white boxes above the earth. And one might wonder, what are these white boxes? Well, those are the tombs of the dead. Instead of putting flowers on those tombs, as you come down the Mount of Olives, you'll, say, you'll see that they put rocks on those tombs as a, as a show of uh, showing their respect and such. So they don't bury them underground in everywhere in Israel. That was one of the traditions that they practiced there. So on the side of the Mount of Olives, if you look at pictures, you'll see this side, portion of it that's just filled with white boxes. Those are tombs. And outwardly, they look somewhat pretty. And Jesus uses that as an example to point out to the Pharisees, you all outwardly, religiously, you look like you are a great religious person, right with God, doing all the right things. But inside of you, what's inside of those tombs? Dead men's bones. What does Paul teach us in Ephesians 2? Outside of Christ, what were we before we met Christ? We were dead in what? trespasses and in sins and so this is who Saul is but despite Saul's past what do we find happen in Acts 9 despite all his his hypocrisy all his all his works-based uh, uh, salvation that he was striving towards in the law despite Paul's Saul's past Jesus has sought him Despite who he's been, he has sought him. This is the truth for each and every one of us who are saved today. Jesus did not look at you and see if you are good enough to seek out for salvation. No, he sought you despite your past and all that you had ever done. Friend, if it depended on your past, none of us would make it. If it depended on who you are, none of us. None of us would ever be saved. He's seeking Saul despite his past and his present, what he's doing. You see, Saul and us are exceedingly sinful. We all deserve the wrath of God. We are dead and blind in our sins. Consider your own past today and think of how God's grace has worked in your own life. And friend, today, if you're not saved, do not fall into the mistake into thinking that your past is too filthy for God to save you. You don't even compare to Saul of Tarsus. You don't. You don't. You understand that there is no sinner who is so filthy that they cannot be saved and no sinner who thinks there's clean enough that they need not be saved. Every single one of us need the grace of the Almighty that only comes through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul would later write the truth he recognized about himself in his pastime. And he says in 1 Timothy 1.13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He realizes later in his life, or actually when he's converted, but he knows that his past life as Saul of Tarsus, as that Pharisee, who he really was. Because it's only after we meet Christ that we look back and realize who we really were. So, friend, this is, this is an encouragement for us to understand this, that Jesus sought him despite his past. And we ought never to look at a sinner that we think is so filthy that they could never be saved. Because God's grace saves the worst of sinners. 
saves the worst of sinners. He sought him not only despite his past, but despite his perversion in the present here. Now notice, while Saul is riding on his high horse on the road to Damascus, what do you think his thoughts of Jesus are? What do you think his thoughts of Jesus are? I think it's obvious. He hates Christ. He hates him. He hates Christ with a passion, and he hates those who identify with a passion. He is just like those Jews who had shouted, crucify him, crucify him, not long ago. His mind and heart are set on destroying the church. Now listen to the response of Ananias in chapter 9. Look at verse 13 for a moment. Look at verse 13, because you look at some, some, some tie-in here through the rest of the chapter. Because the Lord speaks out to Ananias, and here's what Ananias says to the Lord about what he's heard of Saul. He says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Now, Ananias has not met Saul yet, but he's heard the word. Saul is famous for his persecution of the church. And even after the news of his conversion, there's going to be many disciples that are skeptical as to whether, is this the real deal? Is this guy playing the salvation card to get an in with us and then, then maybe try to take us down? I, I, I mean, be honest, we all might have been a little skeptical of Saul of Tarsus. We probably would have. But what do we see here? We find that, that in this state, he is so perverse in his thinking, he's done much evil against the church because much evil is in his heart. Verse 1 and verse 2, what did we read? We see that Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for them letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way. I like that, the way. What's Jesus? He's the way, right? The truth and the life. So this way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Friend, the evil that Saul is looking to do is because of the evil that is in his heart. And that is a foundational truth to all of humanity. Why is there so much evil in the world? The answer to that is because man's heart is evil. Man's heart is wicked. Jeremiah the prophet wrote and said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can know it. That word sick refers to something that is medically incurable. Incurable, wicked, depraved. Our sin-sick hearts can be cured by no one except God alone. And this was Saul's dilemma. This was his heart and our own. Now, Paul, understand this. He had no thoughts of coming to Jesus or being saved from his sin. Think about this for a moment. Saul has no mind at all on his road to Damascus thinking, you know what, I think I'm just going to get saved today. There's a lot of people who think that. Well, you know what, you just need to turn to Jesus, and that's true, but you understand that man, naturally, he's not seeking after Jesus. He's not seeking after Jesus. His will must be changed. His will must be affected by the grace of God. You see, Saul right here, he thought he was already good with God. He thought he was doing God's work by persecuting the church. He thought Jesus was the enemy. And this shows you how deeply it is that sin blinds the minds of those who are lost. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Paul the Apostle writes of those in their lost state and how Satan also has interacted in that. 
He says, in their case, the God of this world hath blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But here's what I want you to see. Despite how perverse Paul's mind and heart is, what does Christ do here? Christ seeks him. Christ seeks him. He calls him by his grace alone. You see, Saul, of all people that we could look at, did not deserve to be sought by Jesus. But it is by grace alone here that Saul is sought. Because that's what grace is. It is undeserved and unmerited, unearned favor of God. Paul did not seek Jesus here. But Jesus sought him. Because what did Jesus say he came to do? He came to seek and save that which was lost. And those lost are his sheep that he will find. And this is the truth of all men who ever come to know Christ. They are sought because they themselves will not seek. Romans 3 and verse 10, Paul, he also, Paul also writes later, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. It ties it all together when you see this Saul of Tarsus, who he was, and that most of your New Testament is written by this very man. Well, the doctrine we preach, or the doctrine we, we rejoice in, it's written by Saul, by Paul, actually, under the inspiration of the Spirit. You see, grace shows us a man fighting Christ, and yet he is found by Christ and pardoned, even though he was his enemy. There's a story of a man named Pete Miller. He was a plain Baptist preacher who lived in Pennsylvania in the days of the Revolutionary War. Near his church lived a man who maligned the pastor to the last degree. And that man became involved in treason and was arrested and sentenced to be hanged. Well, the preacher walked on foot 70 miles to Philadelphia to plead for the man's life. And Washington heard his plea but said, no, your plea for your friend cannot be granted. The preacher said, my friend, he is not my friend. He is the worst enemy I have. Washington responded shockingly and said, what? You walked nearly 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? And that act moved Washington to have a different response towards this man that was guilty. But this puts into perspective for us the reality that you understand all of us were enemies of Christ and yet he came into the world through the incarnation, gave himself to die on the cross on behalf of his enemies. You know who I was before I met Christ? I was his enemy. Every single one of us were. We were all had an enmity, a hostility towards God in our heart. This is true of Saul. It is true of us. And it further shows that if Christ had not supernaturally called us to himself, we would forever be his enemy. We would never have been his child. And Paul later writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.14, through this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a work grace does in the heart of sinners. Notice with me number two. Not only did grace call him unto Christ, grace converted him unto Christ. Calling and conversion go hand in hand. Conversion brings about that finished work in our hearts once we have been born again. 
And notice three quick things here about this. I want you to see with regard to Saul of Tarsus that his position was changed in Christ. His position was changed in Christ. Now notice this in verse 3 through 5 as we look at our text some more. Verse 3 through 5, he says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now I want you to notice that Jesus Christ stops him dead in his tracks. As suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. Now keep in mind that this supernatural light strikes Saul in the middle of the daytime. Now Paul testifies later of this experience and he says in Acts 26 verse 13, he's recalling this Damascus Road experience and he says, at midday, O king, At midday, I saw on the way a light from heaven, watch this, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Now, how bright is the sun? Well, it's so bright you can't go outside and just look at it. I'm going to give you some really good advice. Don't go outside and look at the sun. It'll damage your eyesight. How could there possibly be a light shine upon Paul at the brightest point of the day, brighter than the sunshine? Because Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. He shines far beyond any other brightness that we could ever imagine. The high and mighty Saul is struck down by the blinding glory of Christ. And we read in verse number 4, What happens with this? Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's struck to the ground by this light. And what a powerful illustration this is of what happens in conversion. Because there's a principle here that's true for all of us who know Christ. Is that all of us were struck to our core when Christ saved us. By the very light of Christ in the gospel. I want you to listen to what Paul would later write to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 through 6, I see a great connection here. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 and verse 6. And notice what Paul writes here. I just quoted verse 4 to you about how the mind is blinded in unbelief. How that Satan and sin, they blind the unbeliever. In darkness, but notice verse 5 and verse 6 here. Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, notice this. Where does the light of God shine into? Into our hearts. Into our hearts. You see, Paul contrasts here the light that is ushered from the very breath of God at creation before the sun was created, when it was all darkness in Genesis 1, to the light of Christ that penetrates the darkened heart of the unbeliever. Think of how powerful that light is. It's always fascinated me that God said, let there be light. But the very 
instruments that give us light in our earth, they weren't even created yet. He spoke light into the darkness. And understand that this light of Christ in the gospel has penetrated the hearts of those that God has called. You see, that day didn't just blind Paul physically. He couldn't see physically, right, because of all of this. But man, he could see spiritually, couldn't he? Don't we sing a song that goes something like that? Amazing grace. I once was blind, but what? But now I see. Now I see. You see, God speaks the light of Jesus into our hearts just, as, just with the same power that he spoke light into existence at creation. You understand, this is why you can't convert yourself. I think it, it was Spurgeon who said something like this, that no man could convert himself anymore that he could make a world. It takes the power of the Almighty to convert us. As Jesus strikes him down, he calls out to him, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now imagine being Saul hearing these words. Saul says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Now do you notice that Saul calls Jesus? He calls him Lord. Now he could have just said, who are you? Now Saul here, he recognizes that whoever this is, this is the Lord. This is the Lord. Now watch this. Jesus answers him and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Imagine the utter humiliation in Saul's mind when he realizes he has been persecuting the Lord he thought he was serving. Imagine what takes place in his heart here. What brokenness in the heart Saul has experienced. How wrong he was. How sinful he was. How blind he was. How condemned he was. And so, friend, when we come to Christ, we realize those same things. Before we were converted, how blind I was. How condemned I was. How sinful I truly was. Friend, all of us, were it not for the grace of God, would have been the worst, could have been the worst of sinners. We could have been just like Saul. The Reverend John Bradford, who's a minister in England in the 1500s, he was martyred in 1555. He saw some criminals being taken out to their execution. As he saw them, he said, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. And you can look at the worst of sinners today, and you ought to say, but for the grace of God, there goes my name. That would have been me, could have been me. But now that Saul has met Jesus, it's in this moment that conversion has taken place. He has been born again. He has been regenerated by the Spirit of God. He is now a Christian. He is now a saint. He is now a believer. He is now one who is in Christ forever. And as he would later write in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what, church? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And oh, how Paul knows this truth. He knows this truth, and oh, how you know this truth who know Christ. This is what happens when the sinner meets Jesus. Their life is forever changed. Your life is changed when you genuinely meet Jesus. And understand this, it is a contradiction of terms to say that you've met Christ, but you've not been changed. And there's a lot of profession of Christ in this day and age with no possession of Christ. If you claim to know Christ, how has He changed your life? Has your life really been changed since the day that you say that you've met Him? 
Because profession is not enough. You must genuinely know him through the new birth. Now, this does not mean that a person becomes perfect when they meet Christ. But it does mean that they will have been changed. And it will be evident in their life over time. And that leads me to letter B. Not only was Paul's position changed in Christ, his path was changed. The direction of his life. In verse 6, we see Saul's reaction and the Lord's instruction. And in this text, we have a textual variant there in verse 6. In some translations, you'll find at the beginning of that verse 6, it says, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? You'll notice that Saul again recognizes Jesus as Lord. Even knowing that it's this Jesus, the very one he had hated and was persecuting, he's Lord. He can't do anything other but call him Lord. And so the path of Saul here was no longer a religious Pharisee. He is now going to become a regenerated preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus tells him, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And this is where Ananias comes in. The disciple whom Christ uses to help this new believer along in his calling. Jesus reveals his plan to Ananias in verse 15 and verse 16. Notice this. Verse 15 of Acts 9. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How ironic this is. That Saul was an instrument who brought suffering on those who believed in Christ, but now he's going to be one who endures suffering for the cause of Christ. He is a chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews. You see, Saul's path here, the direction of his life, was not changed because of anything he did. Jesus did all of this. It was all of grace. He recalls in Acts twenty-two fourteen. As Paul says, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. God had chosen Saul, both to salvation and to service. Saul is drawn out of the crowd that he had been among. You ever notice in verse 7 that the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one? They didn't get converted at that moment. It could be that maybe they did later. We don't know if that was God's plan. But you understand that these men with Saul didn't receive the same thing Saul did on that day. Could they have been converted later? Yes, yeah, sure, if, that, if God had drawn them. But in one moment here, Saul went from being among friends to being among foes. He was, among, he was now a Christian among those who were persecuting Christians. And perhaps you and I understand this too, that when we get saved, we're now among a different group of people. We live in the world, but we're no longer of the world. And often the world around us, they are hostile to Christ, whether directly or indirectly. But because of Saul's conversion here, his path would be a life of service to the Savior who saved him by grace alone. He says later in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul understands this later in his life, that who I am today is attributed only to grace alone. 
And even though I am being used as a vessel to do things, he still says, it's still God's grace doing that. A life of labor for the Lord is the fruit of saving grace in his heart. And Saul now had this. So the, the path of Saul's life not only changed the rest of his time on earth as a servant of Christ, but it also changed where he would be for eternity from our human standpoint. The end of Saul's life without Christ would be eternity in hell, which is what all of us deserve. But the end of Paul's life in Christ is eternal life, which is what we've been given only by grace alone. And so with that knowledge, Paul is confident and unashamed and has no doubt that when he departs this life that he will enter into the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8, Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. Paul knows because of him knowing Christ by grace alone that he will enter into the glorious presence of Jesus. His path has been changed in life and on into eternity. And I read this quote, and I want you to ponder this. The Apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. That's how the gospel works. Think of that. Some of the very ones that he had put to death rejoiced to see Saul of Tarsus enter the gates of heaven because that's how the gospel works. It brings about a change, an eternal change in the hearts of even the fiercest of enemies of God's people. Because this is how deep grace works. This is how it works. And Saul is an example. Notice with me, letter C, that Saul, his passion was changed in Christ. You see, before uh, we know Christ, our passions are fueled by what? They're fueled by, fueled by our sinful desires. Saul's passion once was religion. Now it's his redeemer. It's his redeemer. Having a passion for religion is not enough. Because religion isn't what gets you to heaven. It's the redeemer who gets you to heaven. How does one pa one's passion change in such a way? By grace. You see, Paul knew that the most important thing in life was not the temporal earthly pursuits, but the eternal heavenly pursuits. It is to live for the Savior whose grace changed him forever. And here's what we see very soon in this text. As you come down through the rest of the chapter, notice what we find. What does Paul do after, he, uh, after he's met with Ananias and, uh, and he's back up on his feet? You can see, look at, look at verse 19 through verse 22 for a moment. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he did what? He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, who called upon the name of the Lord? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul, verse 22, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. What's Saul doing here? He's showing the direction of his life. His passion has been changed. He's a preacher of the gospel now. This became the passion for Saul. How perplexing this turn of events is. Imagine being those disciples there in the synagogue thinking, just two days ago, I mean, didn't I hear that he was down there persecuting Christians and now he's preaching Jesus here in Damascus? How perplexing this might be. But that's what Jesus does. He changes who we are. 
his heart was now set on Christ, and so should it be with every Christian. Christian, your passion in life must be Jesus. Now, you know, you can have love and zeal for other things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the things of this life that God's given us. But understand this, at the core of our life, our passion must be Jesus. It must be. Paul would later write for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. The passion of Paul for Christ saturates every letter he wrote. I read again in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14 and 15. And this is such a, a key passage revealing his heart. And here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded... This, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And that he died for all, that they which live should, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul's saying the love of Christ controls him. It grips him. It constrains him. It preoccupies him. Why? Because the greatest depth of love is seen in what Christ did on the cross for sinners like us. That's the greatest demonstration of love. You'll never see a greater demonstration than that. And so Paul's conviction and passion here is all summed up in this, these two verses. I will live for the very one who died for me and rose again because his love surpasses all others. Living for the one who died and rose again on our behalf is the greatest pursuit a Christian can live for. Now, let me ask you, Christian, is Christ genuinely your passion? Is he your passion? Do you love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and mind? If not, why not? What preoccupies you? What gets ahead of Jesus in your life? Have you been called and converted by God's grace? Does this saving grace not cut deep within you any longer? If it doesn't, we desperately need a great renewal in our hearts for the gospel of Jesus. Notice with me number three, and I'll close. This point will be shorter, I promise. I want you to see that grace completed Saul in Christ. It brought completion to his life. And I want to point this out to you about Christ and what he's done for us. Two quick things. Christ, knowing Christ, fulfilled all he needed. Fulfilled all he needed. Now, Saul had many things before he met Jesus, but none of those things were what he truly needed. He had power. He had wealth. He had prestige, recognition. He had religion. He had pleasure. He had everything the world longs for, right? But that's not what he needed. He needed redemption. He needed salvation. He needed hope. And these things cannot be found in what this world offers. So many in this world are looking for a hope. They're looking for something to satisfy them, to complete them in all the things of this life. They turn to all sorts of pleasures, trying to find what will complete them, will satisfy them. But you understand, there's nothing in this world that will accomplish that. There's only one person who accomplishes that. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. Paul would later write to the believers in Colossae. In Colossians 2.10, he says, You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The word filled is also translated as completed. How complete a person is, 
with Christ and how incomplete a person is without Christ. Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name, said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds rest in thee. The sad thing is that man in his nature, he runs from the very thing he needs. Runs, 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 and tries everything else into the world. And even though he's down to nothing, he sees Christ, and he still runs. But Jesus says this in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not talking about your physical thirst and physical hunger. He's talking spiritually. That all that a man needs is Jesus. And Saul came to know this eternal fulfillment found only in Jesus. Do you know this today? I hope that you do. Have you met Jesus genuinely, being converted to him? Notice with me, letter B, Christ not only fulfilled all he needed, he also fulfilled all he wanted. What did, Paul, what did Saul want in his life? Well, at the time, he wanted to erase Christianity from the world, right? And here's what we find out, we realize when we come to know Christ. A person who does not know Christ does not even have the right desires. Their desires are tainted by sinful influence. The world thinks they know what they want, but they don't really know what they want. And when God's grace changed Saul, he realized he now had all he truly, really wanted. He now had genuine faith and hope. He now had a real relationship with God, not a hypocritical one. He now had eternal life. John the Apostle writes and says in 1 John 5, 12, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You're in one group or the other. You either know Jesus and have eternal life, or you don't know Jesus and you don't have it. There's nothing that we could ever want that surpasses eternal life in Jesus. There's nothing we could ever want that surpasses knowing Jesus, our Lord, Savior, and Creator. So as we look at this passage, the work of saving grace, it will forever amaze me. It should forever amaze you. Saul is an example of whatever every believer experiences in their own conversion. Grace calls a sinner, despite their past and despite their perversion. Grace converts a sinner, changing their position in Christ, their path in Christ, their passions. Grace completes a sinner, showing them that Christ is all they will ever need and all they'll truly ever want. And I ask all of us today, Have you experienced the saving grace of God? Only you and the Lord know that. I don't know that. But I ask you to evaluate your own heart. Do you genuinely know Jesus Christ today? Don't fall into the trap that Saul was in, thinking, well, I come to church every now and then. Well, I'm religious. Well, I do this. Well, I do that. No, friend. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? Genuinely know him. Have you been born again? Is he your only hope? And trust. And if you do know him, if you can confidently assure me of that, assure yourself of that today, if you do know him, rejoice in what he's done for you. For without his grace, you don't have anything. You don't have anything. You don't have eternal life. Jesus, it all boils down to Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's stand to our feet and we'll prepare for a closing song today. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning. So thankful for this text that we've looked at here this morning. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus is a powerful, powerful example and testimony of how grace works in the hearts of sinners.
We know that all of us have unique circumstances by which we were in when we came to know Christ. We weren't all riding on a horse on our way to Damascus. That was Saul's encounter. We all can probably remember back to the time in our life when you called us, made us aware of our sinfulness and Christ's righteousness and our own condemnation and what Christ did on the cross and how that you brought us to faith in him. Father, may we never, may we never grow tired of the work of grace in our hearts. May we forever rejoice in them. And Lord, if there is one here today that has not known this work of grace, it is my prayer, Father, that you would draw them and convert them as only you can. That your grace would bring them to know Jesus today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.